0: You just physiologically knew that you had reached a point where your body was rejecting you being where it was. Things are vibrating inside your chest, your head. It's like, how close to a fire can you be and be comfortable? How close can you get without getting burned?
1: Tom Reynolds, a recently retired Lockheed Martin flight test photographer, was often on the ground when an X-35 tested its engines in full afterburner. He was the lead flight test photographer of the X-35, and we'll hear more from him later in this episode. The 1980s and 90s were a time of consolidation and budget cuts. Companies were merging to stay alive, Lockheed merged with Martin Marietta in 1995 to become the name we now know, Lockheed Martin. At the same time, United States military leadership was redefining the required capabilities for their next fighter jet. The Air Force needed a replacement for their F-16 Fighting Falcons. The Navy also needed a multi-role fighter that was aircraft carrier-based to replace their aging F-A-18 Hornets. And the Marines needed a follow-on to the Harrier VTOL fighter. For many years, fighter jets were specifically designed for each individual military branch, which was inefficient. So U.S. military leadership wanted one aircraft that could meet the unique needs of all three military branches.
2: How can we combine a single airframe to do all the jobs that need to be done?
1: You might remember Lockheed Martin Sr. Fellow Ed Burnett from our last episode. His role on the X-35 was to test and evaluate flight simulation.
2: Can the Air Force and the Marine Corps share an airframe that we add a kit to the Air Force airplane to make it work for the Marines? And that was a DARPA program called A Doval. And that literally became the birth of what we think of today as the F-35. About 1995 or so, The Navy came on and said, hey, we think this is a good thing for us to play in as well. So we came up with a concept of cousin parts. The purpose of the program was to develop and field three aircraft, effectively, that were cousins of each other. Nice, easy mnemonic. A is for Air Force, B is for the beach, that's the Marine, C is for carrier, that's the Navy. In several different sports, you can have a hat trick. So there's a hat trick in hockey. Three scores, that's a hat trick. Well, same's true in cricket. Same's true in, in soccer. So like the sports analogy of a hat trick, we were really struggling to make three airplanes in one, three capabilities for three different services in one. And so on the tail, you'll see the tail art will actually have a hat with three aces coming out, one for each of the variants. We turned in our proposal in June of 96.
1: And by November of 96, Boeing and Lockheed Martin were chosen by the U.S. government to compete for the best X-plane. Boeing's design was called the X-32 and Lockheed Martin's the X-35. This would come to be known as the Battle of the X-Planes.
2: A lot of the engineers enjoy the fact that you are in a competition because it does bring out the best of you. You've become an adventurer. Can I solve this problem?
1: So Lockheed Martin built two airplanes. One of them was the A variant, which would later be modified to become the B variant and the other was the Navy C variant.
2: A lot of the new aircraft, we're trying to make them either neutrally stable or even unstable in many cases.
1: In our last episode, we discussed fly-by-wire, where a flight-control computer system stabilizes an unstable aircraft. You might be wondering, why design a plane to be unstable in the first place?
3: Yeah, And the reason you do that is it gives you great maneuvering performance
1: this is Jeff Boronic, currently a Lockheed Martin Fellow and was the lead flutter engineer on the X-35 throughout the program.
3: And so one of the outcomes of all of this is, is you have this very responsive system, but you can excite what we call the structural vibration of the airplane. That excitation of the structure will be sensed by sensors. You'll have accelerometers to measure acceleration and rate gyros to measure a rotational velocity, and those sensors will pick up those vibrations. And so what can happen is that when the sensor picks up the vibration, it sends it to the control system, the control system then sends a signal to the actuator. Next thing you know, they're all talking to each other, and the airplane's just shaking. It's just like a nervous Nelly, just shaking like crazy. You got a big feedback loop. That's basically, that's exactly what's happening. We resolve that through filtering, so those vibrations are not actually ultimately sent into the flight control system. We filter them out. And so when we go design the airplane, we go fly it, all that has been resolved. We don't have those nasty vibrations shaking the airplane. On the other hand, there is a reason that we test.
4: Right from the start, I was, number one, the only pilot on the program and other people started coming aboard.
1: Remember Tom Morgenfeld, test pilot on the F-117? He became the chief test pilot on the X-35.
4: I was going to be 60 at the time, so I went in to Rick Baker and I said, I'm gonna make this easy for you, getting older. If you would rather have a younger pilot do this, I will accept that and go. I just want to do what's best for the, for the program. And he says, nope, you're the guy. Oh my goodness, X-35. That's the the holy grail of every test pilot is to do a, a first flight and so it was it was tremendously exciting scary not from a safety aspect but all of a sudden you know we worry about single point failures in in airplanes is there one thing that can cause a problem and obviously the first way to come to is, is me. So you, you don't want to fumble the golden football or, or let the family down <laughs> when, you, when you do it. So there's a lot of pressure on you to, to do well. I think people understand the, the, the amount of time the pilots spend working with engineers before we ever fly. Uh, lots of time, particularly in the simulator. Hours and hours and hours in the flight simulator. And so here we are getting all ready for the first flight. We had two F-16s here, X-35, beautiful weather. Well, I had made the mistake. It, it, was, it was going to be a short flight. Seemed to remember about 40, 42 minutes. Here's where it gets a little coarse. I had ignored one of my rules of flight testers, never, ever miss that last opportunity to hit the men's room on the way out to the airplane. So I've been drinking coffee in a brief. So now we're sitting there for almost almost an hour waiting for this stuff to get there. By now, I'm getting urges, right? So that's another memory of the first flight. At any rate, everything's finally up. We go do the flight, and it was marvelous. The airplane just flew so nicely. We came back and landed, so I'm at Edwards. Everybody obviously ecstatic. I get you know, wiped out with a bucket of cold water, which wasn't particularly appreciated at that point. Trying to be civil to people and trying to get to the men's room as fast as you can. <laughs> Some funny memories of that day. From that we were back in the air two days later, so kept flying. Amazing. Amazing. Thank you.
3: After that flight, and it continued on for a few more flights, that he mentioned something about, uh, which is kind of always a giggle factor, magic fingers. He could feel something buzzing in his seat, and it would go away and come back and go away and come back. Well, it turned out what it was was the speed brakes would buzz when they got close to the fuselage so that they were in a closed position. It was in this open position is where it would stop buzzing. And so if one notices almost every photograph you ever see of the X-35 and almost all videos, the speed brakes are always open. They're never up against the bottom of the airplane. And it was because of the buzzing, of which was felt by Tommy as a magic finger.
2: So we finished flying the A airplane in phenomenally short amount of time. And then we could show that If those systems work, the addition of some of the control systems that we wanted to show for the Navy were a natural extension. Literally, two weeks later, we started flying the Navy airplane. There was a lot of things that we did on the X-35C that I believe are going to change how safe it is for aircraft to come back to carriers. Joe Sweeney, our our Navy variant chief pilot, came up with some thoughts on how to integrate direct lift control with how the pilot flies the airplane. That became the genesis to what we're now fielding with the F-35, what we call Delta Path. And when you're coming to an aircraft carrier, you really want to control your glide path. We've automated some of the things. So instead of having to look at the rate at which my landing point is moving down the carrier, I now have a symbol that I can put where I want it, and if that's in the right location, I just don't touch the stick anymore. And it, it holds that position down the carrier that I want to land at, to come back to this, this carrier in the middle of the night on that dark and stormy evening. I'm not going to say it's going to reduce their workload because they're going to work as hard as they can to make it on. But it really reduces the possibility of error for them. So the technologies that came out of X-35 and are applied to F-35 are now finding their way back into other fleet aircraft.
1: So we need to preface this next story Jeff is going to tell with an explanation of what a meatball is. We'll let Ed explain.
2: So if you see, like, Top Gun or any of those movies, you'll hear them say, call the ball. That's what they're referring to, is the meatball, and it's that light on the side of the carrier that helps guide you in.
3: Out at Pax River, when we were doing flight testing of the C variant, I actually was right there on the runway next to the lens, And so you could see him do what we call offset landings, where he's way off to one side, and then he must correct. And so he's watching the meatball get himself corrected. And so it was very, very dramatic in in how much the control surfaces had to move in order to move this 35, 40,000-pound airplane very rapidly to line up with the runway. As we were
2: working the program, we were going to show that our commonality allowed us to convert the Air Force airplane into the Marine Corps airplane. And we actually built the Navy version so it could be converted into a Marine Corps variant, Stovall variant, if we needed to. Stovall is really just an acronym. It's short takeoff vertical landing. The concept is you don't want to necessarily design the airplane to do a vertical takeoff. You want to use the lift. You've got these beautifully designed aerodynamic wings. Let them help. But vertical lift is is critical for the Marines. They need to have the aircraft very close to the Marine on the ground. Well, you know, a 9,000-foot runway is kind of hard to find out there.
1: If you remember in our second episode, Renee Passman said that at the Skunk Works, when your boss tells you to do something, it's the start of a discussion. Here's an example of that.
3: One of our structures division heads put it this way. If people are not arguing, then you do not have an optimal design. If everybody's happy, then things aren't working well. So diverse Opinions, Many of them are um, quite conflicting, and that's oftentimes where the chief engineer ultimately can be the referee in these discussions, and I put it in big quotes, discussions, because some of these can get to be pretty loud. You finally get there, but it's it's an interesting process that one sometimes has to go through. Some of them are easy, some of them are quite hard. So on X-35, the Stovall, that was a very contentious animal because of integrating this lift fan shaft into the engine and also the propulsion system is now a thing that controls the airplane. All of that was very challenging and led to some pretty uh, strong opinions about how things should be approached.
2: Really the biggest challenges, and we knew they were going to be the big challenges, were in this lift system. You know, this was the new technology. It was the one miracle that we wanted to concentrate on. The big invention of the shaft-driven lift fan that Paul Bevilacqua and Paul Schubert patented was the concept of taking a drive shaft out of the front of our, our turbofan engine and adding an additional large fan. By doing so we can increase the thrust of the overall system. And if we turn that fan such that it blows down, you see the same thing on a commercial airliner, this very large fan at the front of the engine. Well, it's blowing air back, and it's increasing their thrust. Well, we're just turning it so it blows down, and we're using it to lift the airplane. And then when we don't need that additional vertical lift, we shut it down, we close the doors up around it, And that allows us to have a a more traditional fighter-like aircraft.
1: For those of you that need a little help picturing the amount of thrust that would be required to make an X-35 hover, Steve Justice put it to us like this. Hummingbirds hover, ostriches run. The X-35 is the equivalent of making an ostrich hover. That takes a big engine. To also be efficient in normal flight, it needed to be a different engine. What Pratt & Whitney created was a magical Houdini engine that operates differently based on which airplane it's in.
2: Interesting about the shaft-driven lift fan is when you want to be a a fighter, you need to turn off this large fan that's located just behind the pilot. And the fan is powered from the drive shaft that comes out of the front of the engine. So we have a a large clutch, kind of how the clutch works. have a bunch of plates in there. Friction causes them to stick together, and when you don't want that power to go, you pull the plates apart, and you're no longer transitioning that power through the friction. That's what we have. In between our main engine and our lift fan, we have a clutch. It's about a foot in diameter, and it's transmitting about 25,000 pounds of thrust. When we were working on the, the clutch and the clutch controller and lift fan, most of that work was occurring at uh, Rolls-Royce, in Indianapolis. And we took a couple hours to go watch some of the practice for the Indianapolis 500 one evening. And we looked out and I said, you our job's easy. We just have to take all these cars, all 33 cars that are going to run on Memorial Day, and we're going to give them one clutch. And we're going to transition from going zero to 200 miles an hour in nine seconds. And that's about the equivalent, about 33 cars at 700 horsepower each, And that's what we're trying to do. So when the pilot wants to transition into or out of Stovall mode, it's a nice seamless transition for him. Well, when we wanted to test it, we took the clutch and lift fan down to West Palm Beach, Florida, where Pratt & Whitney has its engine test stands, all located out in the middle of the swamps, alligator country. So you don't want to make a mistake. Your friends will leave you out there if you do. we would run the engine and test everything. Typically, you'd get in about 7 a.m. to start your day, and you'd be working and working. And the way Murphy's Law works, you'd actually get to your test that you wanted to do sometime after midnight and sometimes as late as 4 a.m. the next day. As we're doing these engine runs, you're you're tempted to walk outside to see this phenomenal piece of energy, You know, this, this turbo machinery that's just putting out incredible amounts of thrust. And those numbers that you see on the on the instrumentation, they're big numbers, but they don't really have any meaning until you actually walk outside and they, they warn you, they tell you, you know, at least two forms of ear protection. So your little, you know, foam plugs plus a big headset over and you walk outside and you're just inundated with just the feel of everything in you is moving. The color of the mock diamonds coming out of the engine are just phenomenal. The dust from everything around just starts moving, and you see the water out in the in the swamps blowing o- about pieces of concrete if uh, they weren't properly treated, flying off. Incredible amounts of power. So we had very very limited exposure outside. They you know would be yeah go outside, but be sure to come right back in before you hurt yourself.
4: If I have one, the deepest regret, well, probably the second deepest regret in my whole career is that I never, after all those hours of simulating and all that work, the government would never let me fly the B model in Stovall mode. Simon Hargreaves, who was a British aerospace test pilot at the time, brilliant guy. He did the heart and soul of the Stovall work with the airplane. Well, just to show you how pilots can help, he was the one that came up with the whole Roadmap on how we were going to test this whole new system. Did that over the coffee table and I camped out with him there for a while because I live far away. He sat down a couple nights and mapped out the whole Stovall test program on the coffee table in the house there over a couple beers. Brilliant guy.
2: We built a simulator in the back seat of a Harrier so we could understand how the airplane might fly when we're done building it. We tried to figure out how we could improve the probability of success as much as we could. And to me, it really bore out when we got flying. You know, the airplane did something like 27 flights in 30 days for an X-plane. That's unheard
0: of. You're not the pilot. You're not flying the thing. You're just sitting in the back getting reaping the benefits of somebody else's hard work. When it came to the Stovall version of ground checkouts, they would bolt the airplane to a hover pit. The first one, they just took the nose gear off the ground a few inches and then transitioned to all three gear and it, it began to dance a little bit, so they set it down, went back and retweak things. Uh, it came time to actually hover it in front of the corporate world, so they had brought all the the VIPs from corporate headquarters in Fort Worth and various sectors and where it was going to demonstrate the, the first hover. Simon was the pilot and he was supposed to go up about three feet and park it. My camera position that time was on the VIP section of the people that were watching they had a self-awareness that they were being photographed and they were expected to you know show the appropriate reaction right so i hear it throttle up i'm i'm looking at them i'm not the, the airplanes behind me and uh, i hear it throttle up and it's a loud airplane throttle's up and, and you can tell it's lifting off the ground so I kind of locked my I wanted to to take a peek right but I had to get these people's expressions well when I saw their mouths drop and their eyes get really big it wasn't a staged it wasn't a it was no it was the real deal and they're they're like I I just locked my camera off and turned around, expecting to see the ca- the airplane about three or four feet off the ground. Well, no, Simon had, had gone. He just throttled up and had it parked about, I don't know, 30 feet above the ground, and uh, everybody was like, wow, okay, I think we're ready to go.
2: I was standing there along the fence with uh, with everybody else watching it take off, and the line from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the thing that hangs in the air just like a brick doesn't. That was the thought that kind of came to my mind as you're watching this 35,000-pound vehicle just literally just lift straight off the ground. We were trying to figure out how can we show that the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marine Corps are all going to be happy with this vehicle. But then we wanted to have something that really put a bow on the program, and we came up with Mission X.
1: Mission X would be the x 35 secret weapon. The engineers wanted to demonstrate quickly and efficiently that the aircraft could do all three things incredibly well.
2: That 450-foot short takeoff, accelerate up to supersonic speed, and then come back and do the vertical landing.
1: The hat trick.
2: We were able to show that, yeah, we can jump off the ground at 2,500 feet in Palmdale, even on a hot day. Our competitors made a comment, we had too much thrust. And so our crack maintenance staff went out in the middle of the night and painted on the doors that opens when you go to Stovall mode, too much thrust, so what? Of course, it was, I believe, in July, so it was a nice hot day, early morning start. Uh, Turbo was in the cockpit that day, Art Tomasetti. He was our Marine Corps rep. We got out to the airfield, and I wasn't in the control room that that day, so I had the joy of picking up rocks, uh, making sure that we didn't have any FOD to deal with in the area that we were gonna do our vertical landing. Turbo was out on the field getting ready. He got the airplane converted to Stovall and brought the throttle up got most of the way about 450 feet down from the starting point and executed a, a short takeoff, brought the nozzles underneath him, and the airplane popped off the ground and flew away beautifully. And, you know, for, for those of us that were out there that day, we got to watch him just kind of disappear. And a little while later, you he heard a nice sonic boom, so you knew things were going well. And we had radio, so we were, you know, keeping informed and as he started to come back, he you know, came in and basically came to just a gorgeous hover, and just did a beautiful slow transition down, and a nice, soft, easy touchdown. And you know that was a that was a big day.
0: Mission X was something again had never been accomplished before. And in the fighter pilot world, you know, you know, there's an old saying, you can never have enough thrust or enough gas. So, uh, Lockheed made up a very nice, rather large, oversized patch that was the so-what patch. So-what was meant to be, well, that's no big deal. But those very words kept bringing the accomplishment to light. So, so-what...
2: It is our conclusion, joined in by our colleagues from the United Kingdom, that the Lockheed Martin team (laughs) is the winner of the
4: by the program on a best-value basis. To be perfectly honest, I was smugly sure that we were going to win this one. I knew what we'd done with our airplane. I knew how good it was. Sometimes it's adversity that makes us remember things, and that went so darn smoothly, I can Remember little things like missing opening day of pheasant season because we had to fly on a Saturday because we got back a little bit <laughs> things like that. Uh oh.
1: Inside Skunkworks was recorded inside the Skunkworks in Aerospace Valley, California. Stay tuned for a sneak peek of our next episode. For photos of the first hover of the X-35, visit LockheedMartin.com slash InsideSkunkWorks.
4: They were essentially handmade. The first airplanes were handmade, so everyone was different. And so they flew differently. It gets this incredible view of the earth where the sky is almost black during the day, you're you're almost into the heavens but looking down at the ground, that's pretty cool.